rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. So my internet has been doing this thing where it will just go down randomly, and it happened twice during the middle of Trevor, and so I think my internet is trying to protect me. I mean, that's the concept of a good X-Files episode, right? Like, the internet itself begins to censor you from stuff that's going to harm or bore you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually uh, uh, the A better episode of... than Trevor. Um, yeah... This is um, this has all the makings of a good episode. It, it's got an interesting premise. It's got an interesting monster of the week. It's got pretty good Mulder and Scully interactions, but it never really gels. And I, I don't know why, but I think, I mean, if you wanted a poster for this is why tuning in is no longer being made, then this would be the episode because. Yeah. I literally don't have anything to say about Trevor. I I think this is a pretty atrocious episode on all levels, and I was actively bored watching it and forgot about most of it almost immediately upon finishing it. Okay, so I have three notes on this. I normally take a lot of notes. I actually have a lot of notes from Milagro, which I don't know if I necessarily have much to say about, but... My three notes for this is, number one, noting that's the conversation about spontaneous combustion, which is yet another iteration of Scully starting to believe and Mulder's being skeptical and ha ha ha, isn't that funny? Um, and these are two related notes. This is just like the one with the convict and his girlfriend, and this is just like the one where the demon wants the child. I mean, this is a... One of the things that I had liked about the X-Files circa season three and four was that it was beginning to repeat its themes and repeat certain motifs and episodes things, but with a twist to them, with the knowledge that this time Mulder and Scully are a lot closer than they were when the first time this happened, or, you know, this time they know Skinner has their back, or... This time they're do they're doing it alone. You know, for example, the beginnings of uh, this season compared to the beginning of season two, uh, and I guess I feel like this episode is not iterating in a meaningful way on those episodes. It's just we have to do an episode. Here we go. Uh, you slap a couple of things together and it's done. And. We like episodic television, but sometimes – but here I am seeing – I'm seeing why we, we went to a more serialized form of storytelling. I see why we're only doing 10-episode seasons now. I see why Netflix is experimenting with you know, releasing very short seasons but every couple of months. I see why we, we, we are going towards different models of television making because – wouldn't it be better to spend money on 10 good episodes than 24 okay ones? I mean, it just makes sense on that level. Uh, I mean, yes and no. And I think if we want to talk about economic models of television of instead of talking about Trevor, then we can. Um, because people that listen to this know what they sign up for when they download the, this podcast. But, I mean, in a certain sense, yes. In a certain sense, no. I mean, of course, like... No, I know. And I know, it's, I know that's reductive, making, but... Making 22, 24, 26, 28, 30 episodes of television a season, while it means that the overall quality of the product is not going to be especially high, does mean that if it is 
consistent enough, people will watch it and the advertising dollars will move. Yeah. In. I mean, that, that is why uh, so many yeah. episodes of television were being made. Um, and why and they're the, still being made on for networks. I mean, let's not forget yeah. that everyone always says no one makes television like this anymore. Well, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, the, ABC, and the, NBC, CBS, Fox, and the CW all still make television like this. So yeah, and the and the places that are more particular, like it's HBO that's ha- that really ran with the short seasons, and they don't have advertising, so it doesn't. Re- you know, in that case, it doesn't make sense to have twenty six spots for advertisements for them. Yeah, and I and I think that that you know in a platonic ideal of a, of an X Files season, yeah. of course, you know Trevor would not have made the cut because it is boring, it is ugly, it is offensive, it is it's dumb, and there's nothing about it that is yeah. what we expect the X Files to give us, except for well, this is an X Files episode. I mean, let's be clear. Like I have been dancing around this for a while, but. I don't like the look of the show now. Yeah. It, it it still kind of looks the same, but it's just uglier. And I'm not saying anything about the people behind the scenes doing this. They're doing a good job. I just don't like the way the show looks now. And I prefer the look of the show when it was being filmed in Vancouver. And that was, of course, due to yeah. a confluence of factors. But... I just don't think that the X-Files looks as good as it used to. And in an episode like this, which starts out in an extraordinarily ugly location, which is in like the hilly scrublands of the L.A. basin, and it's supposed to be Kansas or whatever the fuck it's supposed to be. Yeah. And you've got these hillbillies yelling at each other. I'm just like, what? what is this? I, I don't like this. This makes me feel actively gross. And I don't like... Well, what is happening to this show? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, Drive to me is, has been the best of the LA season so far. And I that episode made a lot of its setting, made a lot looked cool, was able to use the the, the environment to be atmospheric. It's very claustrophobic and hot in that car it's very wide open there it's just about movement and and it worked to that advantage this doesn't really uh other than the tornado scene i don't feel like like the hurricane one the other week did a good job of uh aguamala did a good job of being using a different environment using weather to be oppressive and terrifying and this just doesn't. I don't know. It, 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 it's. It always surprises me that this is still in 1999, that we're still in the 90s, because it doesn't feel like a 90s show anymore. And I think I really like the 90s-ness of The X-Files. Yeah, I did too. I mean, certainly I think that, that you know, 1999 is a 2000. I mean, it doesn't really matter that much. No, I mean, of course. But, th- things but, don't drastically change the minute that, that the, the calendar rolls over. But Although I would, I, ar- I mean, you would ar- I think you could argue that 9-11 was the clicking over into the 2000. That was certainly a sea change, at least in America. And we are still pre that here. But but I I think that, that on paper, the sixth season of The, of the X-Files looks really good but but there's just something about these episodes that isn't i don't think people i don't think the production staff is that interested in it and 
I, I, they figure it out to some degree. I mean, I, I think that the seventh season is, is it kind of figures it out a bit more than the sixth season did. Um, and the eighth and ninth seasons, while some of it is boring, I think they, they figure out how to tell the stories they want to tell uh, much better than the sixth season. In a lot of ways, this is a transition season. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Transition seasons are not always going to be the best. I mean, I think of something like the sixth season of Buffy, for example, which... Uh, charitably speaking, wasn't very good because they didn't really know what the fuck they were doing because they thought the show was canceled. Um, and I think you see yeah. a similar dynamic at work with the X-Files where Chris Carter wanted to be done with the show. He thought he was transitioning over to a big budget action movie franchise series. Yeah. And then Fox was like, no, we want more X-Files and we'll throw a bunch of money at you to make it. And he's like, all right. And then David Duchovny was like, well, wait a second. I thought we were done with this. If we're going to continue to make more X-Files, I don't want to go to Vancouver. I want to be closer to my wife. And that's how everything started to fall apart. And what you get in an episode like Trevor is an episode which I don't even think would have worked last season. I don't think it would have worked in season four. But we've just seen so much of this that it is like I don't really care about any of this. You know, it's just... This thing happens, and then this thing happens, and then Mulder and Scully show up, and they talk to each other, and then the guy runs around, he's looking for his son, and you're like, why? And then it turns out the glass stops him, and then the end of the episode is the end of the episode. And I don't care. <laughs> like, I just don't care about any of it. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I made this metaphor before, but this is, the ba- this is a tiny indie band from the PNW that... You know, gets big, moves to L.A., and suddenly their stuff is, like, so polished and it's crappy. It's, um, which is what was happening a lot in 1999, but that's a different story. Um, it's not quite the problem that we've been having with Voyager where every season feels like a pilot. Like, but it does feel like a reset, and there is a... There is a shoddiness to this season that comes from it being a transitional season, and that shoddiness may have existed in the first season, but at that point, it's scruffy and scrappy, and we're willing to forgive it because, yeah, it's really trying, and it has a lot of interesting things to say, and if it quite can't quite get the tone right... It's going to learn it. And now, oh, look, we're in season two and it's figured it out. And we've got a lot. And oh, we're in season three and that's great. And it gets bigger and bigger and more people watch it and it gets cocky. And we have episodes like Home. And then we have a goddamn fucking movie and the movie does okay and it's not that great. And then we move to L.A. and we are a lot less charitable towards it right now because of how big it got. And it's not fulfilled. And at this point... I'm not going to say the show is soulless, but it doesn't have as much of a like. Why does the X Files exist right now? What is you know uh, taking market considerations out of the picture? And in a, in a platonic ideal world where we only make what we are called to make, why does season six of the X Files exist? And I have not had an answer to that question. I definitely had answers to that in the first season. There are no – the first season had a lot of driving questions behind it, even if they weren't like literal, what is the significance of this kind of question. It had a lot of questions to ask about the anxieties of the times there. Between the movie and the beginning the end, uh, it's answered just about all of those questions. It's resolved those, and it hasn't figured out what question it wants to ask now or – 
why why it's there, what it's talking about. I don't think it's figured out what 1999 means in the way that it figured out what 1993 meant. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't I don't think that necessarily it's very difficult to know what anything means as you're making it. But uh, fair. I mean, I, I don't think, that, you know, but... I don't think that we even know what the last decade meant, for instance, and we're, you know, yeah. eight years away, it's eight years away from it at this point. Um, I, I but, think but, that, but then, I, I, I mean, I, I, I keep going to the fact that, especially at this point, we are a couple months from the Matrix, right? Like we, the Matrix know what 1999 was about. The Matrix knew Matrix knew what the anxieties of its time was, which is why it resonated with so many people, which is why everybody went to see it, which is why you know it's emblematic of why it influenced fashion and the way that we view computers and all of those things. It was very apt. It was very on the pulse, just in the way I think again, around the beginning of the X Files, it knew what questions we were asking. It became a hit because it resonated with a lot of this. It stopped resonating. And, yeah. you know, part, I, 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 even though 1993 and 1999 are removed from me, I can still watch early X-Files and watch The Matrix and resonate with some of those themes because those are still legitimate anxieties and things. What anxieties is Trevor talking about? It's talking about the anxiety of, of men. I don't know. Like, I think that's, that's the other part yeah. of it, too, which is that this episode in particular, and we have talked about this before with the X-Files, but I think it is once again apt with, with Trevor that I think that the gender politics of this series have, have aged poorly sometimes. And I am not really interested in watching Scully try and protect a little boy in a phone booth. And I am not really interested in an angry white man who was angry at his woman. And I am not really on board for, her new boyfriend slash fiance to just like abandon her for, I mean, for what reason? I don't even know. And it just, I think that's what is the most galling thing about Trevor for me is that it treats all of the female characters as, as punching bags. And I, I find that very difficult to watch and very uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. I mean, an episode like Rain King certainly post, ha, p- put women in very specific gender roles, had women in very romantic fantasies, and yet, frankly, because everybody in the episode was in their own romantic fantasy and it was that kind of off-kilter episode, it's okay because it's, being ta- it, it, it's reality being taken over by themes and stylization. Here, this is intended to be a realistic world, and this is just a dumb woman who doesn't quite realize that her boyfriend doesn't actually like her and doesn't want to get married. And she's made so many bad choices, and she – it's just – and I guess the big thing is that the villain is just nothing. I mean he is just id anger, and – where? This is the X-Files. We are past that. I mean we we, we, – the show is at its best when it's giving us an examination of character. And again, look at an episode like Drive, where we have some a character who is, you know, openly anti-Semitic and an asshole and stuff. But we still also find out that he's also a guy who, you know, he loved his wife, he worked his job, and then suddenly everything went to hell, and it was nobody's fault, and it was nothing that anybody did, and he is 
charitably speaking, not his best right now. And and again, a lot of that is the fact that Brian Cranston is a much better actor than whoever plays Trevor in this episode. And um, well, Trevor is I, a kid. I know, I know. That's the joke. Um, <laughs> but 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 yeah, like. It, it, some of a lot of that was in drive script a lot of that was in cranston's performance but you have this utterly unsympathetic character on paper that you do feel pity for i feel no pity for this guy i feel no worry about this guy this guy is just a monster and there is nothing more to him he is just a psycho and it's dumb when the show does psychos without, and there's nothing interesting around it either. Yeah. Because he doesn't even really, he doesn't even feel like a real person. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the other galling part of it is like, he just feels like the writer's conception of an X-Files master of the week. And I don't care. Right. Like it's not interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all we can say about Trevor. (laughs) Let's, let's move on to Milagro. Uh, which also has a lot to say about the gender politics of the 1990s. Mm. Um, but the first thing I want to ask Richard, as someone who writes, um, <laughs> is the writing in this episode supposed to be good? I think it's definitely supposed to be a bit purple. Like, okay. I, I, I really got the sense that he is... This is a guy who is into... Re- this guy is writing late nineties evocations of bad fifties beat writing. Like this is a, this is a genre that if you are an angry young dude who writes, this is what you write. This is a reason that I stopped writing when I became a certain age. Um, because this is how it goes. It is very florid. It is very passionate. It is very ornate and elaborate. And you are very much luxuriating in your own words and stuff that, that I think, I found it, frankly, a very good version of kind of bad writing, but realistically bad because he is good enough, right? Like this is yeah. This it, 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 it's not as if this is just a pathetic joke. Like this is somebody who was told in school, "Oh, you write very well," and never uh, unlearned a bunch of bad habits. I always when I think about writing like this, I always think of a line from the movie Wonder Boys where um <laughs> Oh my god, I forgot they, how much you loved that movie. Oh my I god. I love that movie. They they basically they they break into a student's house. It's um uh, uh, uh Michael Douglas playing a, a kind of a washed up author who's been working on uh his his follow-up novel for something like 5 years yeah. and it just keeps getting longer and longer and longer and he can't figure out a way to, to end it. And um, Robert Downey Jr. plays his agent who's in town for the weekend. And Tobey Maguire plays one of uh, Michael Douglas's students who is a, a gifted writer. And they they go to his house to rescue him in the middle of the night. It's, it's that kind of movie. And his, uh, the Robert Downey Jr. character is reading one of uh, the student's stories. And he's reading it and reading it. And he reads it out loud. And he, sa- he says something like... Um, wow, this kid really needs an editor because he's using way too many adverbs and adjectives. Yes. And, and this yes. is exactly what I always that think of is. when I think of bad writing. Is that, And that's what makes writing purple is that sort of like everything that's going on in these voiceovers in this episode. And because I, and when I you're say... Well, well, like when you're in school, you're taught like use adverbs and adjectives to give your writing that flavor. And that's how bad high school writing writes. And this guy just 
learn to use a lot of adverbs and adjectives more effectively, but he's still, yeah. And I will say that this teleplay was by, uh, well, the, the story was by uh, Frank Spotnitz and John Sheban, and which, you know, read into that what you will. And the teleplay was by Chris Carter. So we yeah. have a story about a guy who is a creepy kind of bad writer by John Sheban, and the teleplay is by Chris Carter. And Chris Carter does a good job of writing very purple prose. But yeah. that should not be surprising because that is essentially what every voiceover in the X-Files yes. is. No, no, no. Th- this episode in some ways was Carter poking fun at his own monologuing style because it's true. It It is certainly different than, the, for example, uh, the Blessing Way monologue but not that different. I mean, I read this episode as, and again, this is, we've talked about the X-Files dealing with toxic masculinity. We have traced a lot of that to, this is probably an interest of Vince Gilligan's. He was certainly aware of this even before the term became there. Breaking Bad is an examination of that. And even though this is Chris Carter writing it, he, at least his initial early seasons, was attempting to give Scully the same dignity, you know, that, that Mulder got, even if he didn't always hit the mark. And certainly he is aware of that. He's worked with Vince Gilligan. So I can see that being what this is. This episode feels to me like a deconstruction of bad erotic fan fiction written by a proto alt-right asshole, which the X-Files was one of those shows that was, this is one of the first with a big internet community that the creators were aware of that they knew was happening. And so I can guarantee people were writing terrible self-insert sex scenes with themselves and Agent Scully. That is who this character is. He is somebody who has stepped out of the X-Files boards. Yeah. I mean, I will will say that that I absolutely love this episode. I think that... Like, if, if the sixth season had been giving us more of this kind of stuff, I yeah. would be much more on board with it because this feels really vital and this feels yeah. really interesting in a way that so much of the season hasn't felt. And, yes, it's very, quote-unquote, off-brand for the X-Files, but yeah. I think it works very well. And And I think you're right that part of what makes this episode work so well is that this guy is creepy, but they know he's creepy. Yeah. And, and that he is ext- like the actor playing him knows that this is supposed to be an off putting individual. You know, this is a man who is play acting at life. He is a bit yeah. obsessed with Scully for a while, which is incredibly creepy. And, you know, he says, well, I tried to get an apartment in your building, but I couldn't. Uh, you know, there's a lot of factors here that are very, oh. very odd about it. And I don't even necessarily want to get into all of the other stuff about psychic surgery and his characters coming to life and stuff, because I don't I'm not to me. That's to just that, like I, I mean, to me, that that was this guy is not a gifted writer. So he comes up with kind of a stupid plot twist. Like, like to me, the Brazilian psychic surgeon is a ludicrous phrase it's the kind of phrase that somebody writing a bad conspiracy thriller would put in well i guess i mean like what what are we supposed to take away from this though because i think that you know this is written by chris carter and he doesn't write episodes very often and when he does they're usually big adventure things like triangle or um how the ghost stole christmas or the postmodern prometheus for example and i think a lot of ways milagro is a much smaller scale example of those types of episodes i think this is chris carter um 
kind of moving away from doing those types of episodes, honestly. I mean, the X-Files doesn't really do them again. And, you know, read, in that, read into that what you will in terms of, of, you know, the viability of the show or how interested Chris Carter is in it. But I, well, I think this is not very well thought out in a way which I find surprising, but it still works. Well, I guess to me, a lot of the action of the, a lot of the, well, I guess to me, a lot of this episode is this writer character, and I don't even remember his name, um, which I Patch think, it. Patch it. Um, Patch it. Uh. Um, he's going this entire time saying, I know Scully, I know exactly who you are, I've got it in your head, I know you, and really, the only person who can, with authority, say, no, you actually don't know her, is her creator, in a way. Like, like, like I, it, it is very deliberate that it is Chris Carter writing this episode and saying, no, you're wrong. If you are viewing these qualities in Scully, you are misreading her. You are taking this wrong. This is really who she is. And yet, at the end of the episode, is... Patchett saying, yeah, well, no, 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 really, she and uh, Mulder are in love, and the show is acquiescing to the shippers at this point. The show is, in a way, the inmates have run that asylum. Maybe I don't know Scully as well as you, the creator, know this, and yet here is something I'm reading into the show, and here is something that is about to become text. And that seemed to be pretty piercing too i mean here i am saying you know the show hasn't always known what it's about this show this episode knows what it's about it is about the interpretations of the scully persona yeah for sure and i think that that this is something that that i think vince gilligan plays around with a lot of course and and he was not involved in this episode but i think that's yeah interesting because it, it means to me that they are really interested in 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 kind of examining her character more. I mean, frankly speaking, you know, we're talking a lot about sort of like behind the scenes stuff, but I do think that Jillian Anderson was still invested in the show in a way that David yeah. Duchovny wasn't. And I think that, you know, David Duchovny's performance, I think, is still pretty good, but in, he, he's obviously getting a little bored. Yeah. And he's never going to be a bad actor, but he's tired well, of being a good actor. We're not doing the seventh season, but you might have ha- taken that statement back if we did. Uh, you know, so so he's I don't know. I think they've done about all they can do with him. Right. And yeah. they are really playing around with the Scully persona in ways which I find interesting in this episode, because. This is an episode like Never Again where Scully is 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 dismissive of Mulder interpreting her own feelings for her. And I find that fascinating because this yeah. is an area that Scully gets to quite a bit with Mulder. And Mulder never learns his lesson. <laughs> now, at the end of Milagro, of course, Paget tells Scully that he never had a chance with her because she's in love with someone else. And here we go with the shipping stuff again. But... I I don't know if I completely buy that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, and, and, and I mean, this episode in general is weird because, I mean, there are a couple of scenes, for example, there is a, you know, the scene of Patchen and Scully making out, which is obviously fantasy. I would be interested to watch this episode again and see if there are, how many other scenes are intended to be not actually happening. But in general, the proceedings have a, 
an unreality. Is It is ambiguous whether or not Patchett is controlling things, whether he does have a weird insight. The contrast with Never Again is that in both episodes, Scully is doing something wildly out of character, specifically involving a strange man that she meets who has a connection to the case that they're working on. And yet in Never Again, she has a, ver- a couple of very explicit reasons why now. Specifically, she knows she has cancer. She's not yet ready to face that. And so she is going a little mad in that episode. And this is something wildly out of character to not deal with that. There isn't really anything that she's dealing with in this episode which would make her do something this out of character. I can't necessarily tell why she's quite... And yet, a lot of the... This is somebody who is creepy, who undeniably has some connection to this, who is making overtures to her. And so part of her as an investigator might run with that in order to just, well, let me get him talking and figure that out. I mean, certainly her mode that this, this episode is a lot of, I mean, this episode is about motivations in a lot of ways too. And we are going to ha- we are having an, a, a very complex episode. Although I think this episode is able to carry the weight of all of these particular themes and resonances. Um, the question of motives comes up in this episode, and we don't, we can't know what another post person's motive is. We can only see their actions and hear their explanations, and so we don't know if Scully's motive in this is she's curious because he's obviously the killer or knows the killer or has something to do with the killer, and let's keep him talking. Or this is a really strange guy. I really haven't met anybody like him before. I am intrigued by him simply as a weird human being kind of. I mean, there there are a lot of, or just, hey, he's attractive, I like him. I mean, certainly Patchett views her actions as the last one, or wants to. Um, yeah. But it is kept kind of shadowed and ambiguous why exactly she keeps going back to his apartment, why she stays, why she talks to him, why she begins to believe him. Well, I mean, and that's that's the thing about this episode, though, is that that I'm not entirely sure that any of this happened. And, yeah, you know, so much of this could be I mean, for example, like, do I buy that Mulder would have bought a camera and like tried to spy on the guy? I, I, I don't know. There's something about that that just uh, seems yeah, yeah, yeah. And out of character. And I I kind of feel like so much of this is is Paget's. Fantasies about what would yeah. happen if he actually told Scully what was going on. I mean, do I do I buy that there was a writer named Paget who was obsessed with Scully? Sure, I buy that. Do I buy even that he might have moved into this apartment to be closer to her? Well, that's a little bit more of a stretch, but but okay, let's go with that. Do I buy that Scully would be interested in this guy or would be uh, intrigued by him? No, I don't. Yeah, and, and I think that's. Because Never Again was a much more realistic version or realistic take on this sort of thing. And you can see how Scully would be attracted to the guy in Never Again, right? Yeah. He's he's fine. I mean, yes, he's a little creepy, but she doesn't see that at first. Um, whereas Paget is is the first time that they meet. He basically follows her into a church and gives her this long speech about yeah. who she is and, and what she likes to do in bed or whatever the fuck he's saying. And... I can't find, I mean, and then Scully, like two hours later, like ends up in his apartment. Like I, I I don't don't buy that, but I think that, I mean, it doesn't necessarily. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I mean, yes, it is possible that what really happened is you have this writer who happens to be living next door to, uh, 
Agent Mulder, and he's overhearing bits and pieces of them doing his, uh, this case, and his imagination spins them out. He does fall in love with her, recognizes that he can't have her, and that he's never going to finish his novel, and he commits suicide. Like, that may be what really happened. His interactions with the two of them may be minimal at best. Like, maybe they've never even said hello to each other, but... You know, it does almost seem like he again. This is an episode about self-insert fanfic. Yeah, because yeah, that's true. Because I, I I also think that that part of a, I guess part of the evidence for that read is is the way in which Mulder very quickly jumps to this guy is the murderer, and you're like, well, well, how, how, like, why, why? I mean, yes, he reads the novel, but he he breaks into the apartment, but he's already, you know, he's already suspicious of the guy he steals his mail etc etc these seem like things that a frustrated writer would do to make himself seem more interesting than he actually is yeah you know what i mean and yeah and i mean like maybe his apartment is a little more furnished than that but you know he is somebody who just lives you know has no money and lives cheaply but you know this is the uh, again i like certainly the x-files has and this is why this feels like a real X-Files episode in a way that Trevor doesn't. Uh, funny enough that the real episode feels more like fan fiction and the episode about fan fiction is more grounded in its reality. But the X-Files has long questioned about who is telling this story and what did this, this mean. This is a uh, Jose Chung episode. This is a Mundo Hira episode. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, this is a Clive Bruckman episode. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially I mean, because both the ki- the killers in both Clyde Bruckman and this episode don't know what their own motivation is and are desperate to find it. I mean, obviously Chris Carter knows knows that when he has a character asking, "Why am I killing?" he knows what he's calling back to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, and I think that that there's there's so much evidence for that read of the of the episode in the episode because so many of Paget's interactions with Scully are are fundamentally ridiculous. I mean, they are the sort of things that a teenage boy is going to yeah. think that are going to be impressive to an older woman. And I mean, I always think back to to Paget's line where you know she says, "Well, you don't have much furniture," and he says, "I just have a desk to write at and a bed to sleep in. I don't need any more than that." And it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay. like this may work on somebody who's twenty two, but so, you know, a a. A successful FBI agent in her 30s is going to say, like, okay, you need to get your shit together. Like, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on Trevor or Merlagra, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. And just a reminder, two episodes of Tuning In left, as we said last week. We're wrapping it up at the end of the sixth season. Uh, Next week may be challenging. I don't know. We'll find out. We're going to be talking about The Unnatural with story credit by David Duchovny. Oh, oh, they were trying to keep him happy. And now we learned why he's an actor. And it was also teleplay by David Duchovny. Oh, God. Now we found out why we only let him do story credits up till now. And then we'll be following that up with a Vince Gilligan and John Sheeban episode entitled Three of a Kind. Mac, why do you...